I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to a special edition of History Hack. We are here today because uh, basically I can't say no to three sad little faces that want to talk about Wellington and Napoleon. And I don't mean sad as in pathetic, I just mean as in please. Uh, so we have with us today, this was all orchestrated by William Fletcher, who you may remember came on quite a while ago now and did uh, some of the Polish Napoleonic stuff for an episode of Pole Position for Alina because she was determined to try and claim some Polish glory for Waterloo or whatever. So William Fletcher's back with us. Hey, Will. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Oh, this was a good idea. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I thought it had to be done, 50th anniversary and all that. You did, but then I did say to you immediately, if we don't ask these two, they will <laughs> never forgive you. So we've got Marcus Cribb with us, who never, ever passes up an opportunity to trash Napoleon, even when he's hungover. <laughs> That's about right, yeah. I think we're going to try to talk up uh, Wellington today as well, which is also obviously my favourite subject in the world. Brilliant. Of course. And uh, the, as usual, the most baby-faced person in the room is the only adult. Zach, hey. You're right, Alex. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, not bad. <laughs> so, guys, uh, we're going to talk about the film, talk about how it came about, talk about some of the portrayals, talk about how it uh, fit in with history and what they fudged. Um, so, I guess, let's start with, had there, before this, been an epic Waterloo production, or was this the first time someone did it? Not as far as I'm aware, for an epic Waterloo production, uh, they they did quite a lot of life of Napoleon, uh, even back in silent movies. Uh, he was kind of his individual focus on him, especially um, Napoleon and Josephine. Uh, there was quite a few of them, uh, both in European and uh, American theatre. But uh, they don't tend to focus on Napoleon's like last time, um, last battle, really so much. Just uh, his life and the, like a biopics of him. So this was a huge undertaking, and we'll go into how big, but effectively as big as the battle, um, but caught on a caught on film. Brilliant. So how does it come about? When did when did they start planning it, and and how did they go about trying to recreate the Battle of Waterloo? As far as I understand, it was about 10 years in the planning. I've got a little programme about how it came about. And as far as I understand, like most films, the funding was a big issue. <laughs> and so it was about 10 years in the planning. And then the big change was the Soviet army agreeing to get involved. And that sort of made it financially possible. Um, so as far as I know, that that's how long it was, about 10 years, I think. Ah, so much like Sharp then, it was the presence of a load of Russians who were willing to get shot at for very little money that made it happen. Yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And, and they are a huge part of it. Um, when you uh, see the movie, there's, it's obviously in the pre-CGI era, so mm. when you're seeing all this rush, all these soldiers effectively running around um, and stood around, actually, most importantly, they are Russian um, Soviet Army, USSR. Um, and what I always think is incredible is you've got just lines and lines of people filling up the, the backgrounds. And they are, 
you know, all soldiers. My understanding of it is they had um, like a couple of different layers of costumes. So for people in the very far distance, they'd effectively just have like a, a blue jacket or a red jacket. And then just they'd stitched on a piece of like white to make it look like their belts. Mm. And then as you got closer, there was like a, a, a bit of a semblance of realism. And then actually like proper reproduction uniforms for the carts the main people near the camera so it was like scaled up um but they did just give people like blue and red and they just told them to like stand on the hill for hours as background in a way that was part of the challenge wasn't it that to be able to do this effectively and produce something like Waterloo on such a scale you needed to have either free labor in effect or very very cheap labor to be able to do it justice but equally you had the challenge of kind of Napoleon's reputation and the fact that if you're going to focus exclusively on that return from Elba and the whole Waterloo story and Napoleon's ultimate failure, that's quite difficult to sell to certain audiences because in some parts of America where you've got to think a a good chunk of the audience is going to come from, Napoleon's really popular and that cult of Napoleon still exists. So if you're going to make a a kind of docu-film, documentary film, about Napoleon's return, you've got to cover the fact that he was meant to stay on Elba, he didn't, he came back, he broke his treaty, he ousted the monarchy, effectively led a coup, then led an army into a preemptive invasion of the Netherlands, none of which kind of reflects particularly well on him. So it's quite a hard one to sell to people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, as you say, the, the cult still um, persists very strongly then and now. I mean, Zach and Even I did a, a, a on it. <laughs> um, he's plugging himself, and I know he is. Look at his face. Um, <laughs> and um, Yeah, he, he's completely right. And he had all that. And then also the epic scale of it. I mean, as much as I'm a huge Sharp fan, there's a moment in Sharp's Waterloo that everybody still laughs at, that Wellington points and goes, this is Hugh Fraser, goes, oh, look, the Prussians arrived. And it's three people on a horse that, like, <laughs> appear for half a second. Yeah. And it's just kind of laughable. It's like 50,000 men mar- meant to be marching from the e- northeast. And they're just not really represented. It, in Waterloo 1970, you've got thousands and thousands of extra people who've either changed costumes or they're, they're held to represent. It's brilliant. Zach? Yeah, I definitely agree. That's one of the, the differences that you see between Sharp, where they're working on such tight budgets even when they are filming in, in various kind of cheaply found locations. And, and you can see that in some of the, the shots that they put together. Try, though they do, to produce a really good effect. If you compare that to Waterloo, the film, you can really see the impact of having just hundreds of extras that are used to really good effect, in fairness. William, you're slightly obsessed with this film, aren't you? Yeah, no, it's been, you know, since my childhood, I think it's, you know, one of the things like many historians where it gets, you know, you've got to have something that gets you hooked into the period. And I think Waterloo for a lot of people, you know, I've seen a lot of people commenting the last few days on how Waterloo back in 1970, for those of them that were alive back then, was a sort of major, major thing in terms of getting people interested. And I think as a film, it's still, you know, for all of us that are interested in the period. Um, Obviously, there's loads of historical issues with it, but overall, it's one of those things that um, gets people interested in the period and gives the general overall impression, which is, you know, a good starting point for most people. And I think that's the sort of real um, good bit, good thing about Waterloo, the film. OK, so let's talk about the casting. Rod Steiger, yay or nay, guys? Huge thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah? 
I mean, to me, Rod Steiger is like as Napoleon as Napoleon. He is brilliant. Yeah, definitely. I'd agree with that. I think they get a lot of the the key features of Napoleon sort of um, nailed down there in terms of him sort of dominating decision-making and sort of being very confident in himself um, and how that sort of all unravels in the 100 Days campaign is a sort of key aspect that the film does get across, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. And particularly in terms of the look as well, it's very hard to find somebody who looks like Napoleon at that point in time. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk lately about Joaquin Phoenix being cast to... Oh, no. Yeah, he's a Ridley Scott. Um, He's going to do a... a, I think it's going to cover an early part of Napoleon's life. Mm. Um, And there's been criticisms about, is Phoenix effectively too young to play Napoleon? And, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm not overly fussed as long as he portrays the role effectively but that's kind of by the by in terms of look Rod Steiger is absolutely perfect for that point in time Napoleon well past his best a little bit overweight no offense to Rod there um kind of losing his hair all of those kind of physical attributes are there and then he gets across the character really well and this sort of slightly odd version of Napoleon that you get in the 1815 campaign which is nothing like Napoleon at his best I mean there is the odd point of kind of overreaction possibly because Napoleon is quite a hard person to get right. And there's one that really springs to mind for me when the Imperial Guard breaks at the end of the film and there's this classic uh, <laughs> Will's laughing in the background. And that's exactly what I mean. Marcus has just done it. In fact, the, the kind of overreaction, there's this cry of Lagara Q and suddenly Rod Steiger kind of turns around and stares at this camera that's suspended above his head. And it looks like Napoleon's checked the weather for some bizarre reason. <laughs> but, but apart from that and a couple of other slight overacting um, instances, it's a really good portrayal. I love that. You've got to throw in a bit of the overreacting. If he's, this, you've got to remember, this is a New Yorker or a New York State playing a Frenchman. So, well, I was reading online, I'm not sure if it's actually true, but... Apparently, Rod Steiger was advocating the name change of the film from Waterloo to Napoleon after he'd seen himself as sort of a main, the main uh-huh. character throughout, which I think ironically is actually what Napoleon would have done if he had been filmed live himself. <laughs> <laughs> that that seems very, very, very Napoleon. I'm going to come in. I'm going to be part of this bigger thing. It's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> Channeling it. Right. OK. And his opposite number, obviously, is Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer, as, as Wellington, is fantastic, in my humble opinion. He does, he's far more on the witticisms, the little looks, and the charm as well. Like, it's something that's not really brought about in other, like, Wellington features. I mean, Wellington doesn't feature as much in films and TV as Napoleon at all. I mean, obviously, we love Sharp, and he's a central character in that, but even then he's, you know, a, a tertiary character. Um, but, yeah, Wellington was so charming. The women just loved him. They, his men kind of adored him, even though he wasn't affectionate towards them. His wits um, was up there. You know, he was an advisor to many royals. One of my favourite quotes, when the Queen Victoria asked him how to deal with sparrows, and he just turns around and goes, sparrow hawks, mom, and just keeps going absolutely <laughs> dead-faced. That's, that's what Plummer brings to it, his little affectionate tweaks and eyebrow raises. He's excellent. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And the whole aristocratic nature of Wellington comes across really well in the film. And I think 
and that's something good that they concentrated on. It could have potentially looked slightly more like Wellington, I think. <laughs> but, they didn't go with the fake nose and make him ugly, didn't no. they? <laughs> no, not that one. But I think, again, a bit like Napoleon, how I think the film gets across how important commanders are in the campaign and how, again, Wellington sort of dominated headquarters and was the key sort of decision maker on the you know, Anglo allied side for his army. Um, I think that's really good as well, how he's the sort of key figure and it's not too many people getting involved and it's his decisions. So what about, um, for me, like Wellington's relationship with his troops? There's some fictional accounts in there. I'm quite interested to hear where, because Will and Zach do quite a lot of reading into um, the, the Peninsula and Waterloo first-hand accounts and the, the court-martial records, for example. But there's, there's a famous bit with a, a looted pig and he promotes him more instantly to corporal and things like that. I, I find those the most fictional parts of the Wellington and Waterloo, perhaps, but also very enjoyable. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, the relationship with Wellington and his men. I mean, compared to a lot of other commanders, you know, such as Sir John Moore or, um, you know, other commanders where they were definitely loved um, by their men, Wellington definitely had a different relationship. Um, in terms of that thing with the, the looting, obviously, Zach will know more about the crime and punishment side of things, but the Dilla Skillen Regiment, obviously, that is one thing, you know, they're famous in terms of being uh, not the best behaved, but also good fighting troops, I think. Um, from that side of things, just, it's a bit of sort of film license, isn't it, to sort of try and emphasise that point. But the actual, yeah, the actual that story of the pigs, obviously, pretty ridiculous. Um, interesting, the moment when the soldiers warn him about being near near the tree, because um, obviously Wellington's elm is where he's stationed for most of the battle. And reading into my own research about the staff at Waterloo, that's certainly a story that is meant to have happened, where the men sort of warned him that he was near the tree. So I thought that was quite an interesting part where there's a relationship between his soldiers and himself and they're obviously able to actually talk to him um, rather than like being too scared to even say anything so I thought that was quite interesting. But conversely Zach you like how Christopher Plummer um, got got away uh, got across the the kind of do you call it slightly gittish side of, of Wellington? Yeah I'd call it kind of smug Wellington to be honest with you <laughs> um, but the kind of the mannerisms of the guy, Marcus, Marcus just pulled a face at me. <laughs> but, uh, he, you know exactly what I mean by that, that kind of aristocratic sense of, I mean, there's, there's no getting away from it. Wellington was a snob. Now, that's not surprising by any sense, um, because he was an aristocrat. He came from uh, a family. His uh, brother was the, was it the Lord or the Earl of Mornington? Well, uh, by that point, Earl of Mornington, Richard Wells. Earl of Mornington. So he's coming from... And Governor-General of India, you know, very very powerful man. Exactly. Wellington himself has a seat in the Commons. He's got his own estates by this point. He's become a Duke. So he's very invested in that kind of sense of class hierarchy. And with that comes a certain way of conducting yourself. And Plummer absolutely tapped into that, but was able to get the humorous tweak that also comes through from Wellington's own letters and his correspondence. And this guy was incredible with the odd scathing put down that could just cut somebody down to size in an instant. And Plummer gets all of that across in this kind of slightly sarcastic, smug way, as I say. Um, it's interesting what Will says about the, the tree, because for all that the tree was obviously a, a point that you could pick out as a, a firing location, something to aim at, um, the tree was damaged much more by Waterloo tourists 
in the centuries after and they would come and take down bits of the tree um and i think in the end there was so little left of it because people had just kind of broken off branches and taken it home as a souvenir that they had to cut it down um, and they made it into a few kind of sample boxes for mementos and stuff and, and uh, it's not there anymore. set of chairs yeah the chair as well yeah set of chairs uh, which I've seen, yeah, really, really nice item. But you do often find people come and uh, have like, what presents for me at work, like leaves, and go, oh, these are meant to be from the uh, the elm tree. Can you uh, validate it? And you go, well, even if we said it's an elm tree from the 1800s, no one's going to be able to prove it was that tree. It's very difficult to do. <laughs> like what are they expecting you. DNA testing or something? Yeah, all museums have DNA testing on tap, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of the crime and punishment thing that we were talking about earlier, um, the the story with the pig and the guy who's promoted to corporal, the story is that this guy has gone out plundering because they're all hungry, as the army often was. Supplies haven't come in for the night. They've got to fight the next day. They need to get their strength up. They need food. So this guy's gone out and he's found a pig, tucked it under his... um, I think he tucks it into his pack or something. Um, and then at but completely the wrong moment, along comes Wellington. This pig squeals um, and he's, he's rumbled. Um, now, as a story itself, we do have anecdotes that are very similar. There is um, a famous one about some dragoons who um, are riding past and one of them has a sheep hidden uh, underneath his saddlecloth or something. And the sheep bleats as they ride past Wellington. Wellington kind of turns around, gives them an odd look, kind of gives them a smile and a nod, and then just turns back to continue his conversation with one of his uh, junior commanders. And I think they're kind of tapping into that spirit that actually there was give and take within the crime and punishment system, which obviously Alex and I have discussed um, before. We do know that men went out plundering. They were actually, Some men were actually told by their generals that they could go and plunder farmhouses as a reward for continuing to fight and hold themselves together all the way through the night of the 17th, which, bear in mind, was pouring down with rain, thunderstorm, terrible conditions to be standing to, to be prepared for fighting. And they were told as a reward, look, three farmhouses over there, go and get on with it, help yourself to what's inside. So it wasn't unheard of, but certainly the idea that he'd be promoted for giving Wellington a bit of lip is, is kind of the art of Hollywood. Let's speak about the art of Hollywood. Is it like Lawrence of Arabia, where, with in terms of all the other characters, are they faithful in having everyone who was significant, or did they like mash people together to make a character? Are there cipher characters that sort of represent people um, for artistic purposes? How how accurate is it? My point of view, I think the the group of people that are around Wellington is a very odd choice of um, key individuals to have around. I mean, some of them are clearly important, such as Uxbridge, he's really important, and Picton. Um, but some of the others are pretty weird. Um, the, I think the most odd character they have there is Lord Gordon. Um, for the Gordon Highlanders, he, he um, features quite prominently uh, during the film and during the battle. And, he, you know, he's he wasn't there at all. Um, he was involved with raising the regiment originally. But as a commanding officer of a battalion in the first place, he wouldn't be that close to Wellington. And secondly, that character wasn't at the battle at all. <laughs> so they've definitely taken some poetic license there. Same with uh, Lord Hay, who gets killed during the battle. Um, again, he's quite an odd choice. Um, he's not even one of Wellington's ADCs. He's, he's one of Maitland's ADCs, and he gets killed at Catrabra rather than Waterloo. So there's definitely some sort of 
um, interesting people they slot in. I mean, with, with the Hay example, um, he's famous at the Duchess of Richmond's Ball for talking to Georgiana Lennox. So I think that's where they've gone with that in terms of mm. it's a good, good love story and they're sort of trying to weave it in. So they made him close to Wellington and all the, Welling- the chats he has with Wellington. So I think and there's definitely some poetic license in the film. It's a bit, it's a bit of a like a vanity fair, isn't it? Where they've gone, we want to have the young, the romantic. The, I mean, the Duchess of Richmond's Ball is now one of the most romanticised um, parts of any like military campaign at all. Everyone seems to have been at the Duchess of Richmond's Ball, even though there's 200 people there, every single young captain. Um, and then they all happen to go and die in the battle, it seems. And uh, yeah, hey, he dies at um, Capri Brava, which isn't really widely shown in the film. Um, so they need to have him die heroically in the battle and then Gordon seems to be a mashup of both Gordons as a commanding officer and uh, one of the ADCs who dies in Wellington's uh, bed later on um, of his wounds so they seem to have like yeah a bit like Lawrence Arabia they seem to have mashed up certain characters um, but it gives some of the core poetic license it's quite difficult where they've gone some bits really strongly historically accurate as strong as they can do trying to get quotes from wellington that they think he said line for line and then other characters he were like hey he, he died two days before but um he's kind of a helps the helps the visitors like the viewer journey i guess we're seeing things through other people's eyes yeah i think it's kind of one of those things that Hollywood needed to do. There needs to be some kind of little tinge of a romantic connection going on here. And it's kind of quite a typical thing to do when you've got a war story, isn't it? You know, you have a couple in love, they're torn apart. So in terms of artistic license, I mean, I don't take a huge issue with it because everybody does it. I mean, Marcus just talked about Vanity Fair. I had far bigger issues with the way that Vanity Fair did things. Try that they did to do it well. And a, a lot of um, hype was put into how accurate they'd been. Much more went wrong with Vanity Fair's portrayal than ever went wrong with, with Waterloo's portrayal. I'm mm. looking, I'm thinking about, I don't know what, I was watching an episode of uh, Dad's Army and they're at the cinema and they're watching a Napoleon film and there's this horrific drawn out scene in black and white with Napoleon legs. Uh, going, Josephine, I am leaving you, I am leaving you, and it's like the cheesiest thing I've ever seen in my life, and they're all doing impressions of him on the bus on the way home. It's not that bad at all, is it? No, definitely not. No, I and mean, then you, you actually, what, what's quite nice about that is you end up, I think that's the episode in Dad's Army where you end up um, they have the with flashback the dream, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have John Lemezzo as uh, Wellington's actually quite good. Yeah, uh, and mannering is Napoleon. Speeches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but and I think the bus conductor woman is uh, Josephine, isn't she? I can't remember. Yes. Here we go. Our, our favourite cast of a, a Waterloo depiction done is actually Dad's <laughs> Army. There we go. Yeah. There's a, a twist. <laughs> this Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What do you make of the whole, um, uh, the vehicle, plot vehicle they use with the whispering, Rod Steiger doing the what's going on in Napoleon's head? I think that's quite interesting from a decision-making point of view. Um, I think, obviously, from my own research, Napoleon's staff is very different by the Waterloo campaign. And in some ways, Berthier, his chief of staff, not being there, sort of left Napoleon sort of to think things through a lot on his own, mm. <laughs> where Berthier would have sort of taken up the reins on a lot of the decision-making after sort of the initial overall idea came about. So Salt being the replacement for Berthier, I think the whispering thing is quite interesting in terms of Napoleon was kind of trying to work it all out on him, on his own, which was saying he hadn't really done before for many, many years. So I think that's that's quite interesting from that point. I quite like it, personally. Mm. I quite like the whole kind of concept of Napoleon thinking things through. It fits with that kind of ongoing debate about to what extent was Napoleon the big decision maker, but also the fact that he's quite a kind of conflicted person at this point. There, there are things that have gone wrong in his life. And there are lots of questions that we have about his command style at Waterloo that just don't quite add up with some of the things that we know about his earlier career. So I think as a kind of a plot device, I quite like it. Mm, yeah. That's my personal sense. Just trying to make sense of it, basically. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's one of the, if you had no knowledge of the Napoleonic era, it is quite a complicated campaign, purely because it is a, a tale of three armies. So basically, if you were a leader. To show. <laughs> heard about this podcast and went what on a Sunday no way <laughs> no, no, no Lena knows Lena knows the Abba song let's be fair doesn't she we, we uh, yeah but here we go sing it takes away all credit that she deserves for knowing it so um, th- I mean that's where lots of people come from and it, yeah. it, it, you know the, even the Abba song has it wrong it says Napoleon did surrender that well no he doesn't he surrenders on a on a frigate off the coast um, so it's it is one of the more complicated because it does portray I think really importantly you, you've got the the 27th the Inniskilling um, you've got Irish and you've got what it doesn't show is how much of well, Wellington's army are, are Dutch and Belgian but it does show Blucher and I think that's really important that you've got some versions of Waterloo being told, like Sharp's Waterloo, basically don't mention the Prussians, who are a huge part of um, the campaign. Huge. Um, I, I always argue, that this is my personal opinion, that it's not a Prussian victory. It's an allied victory. It's these two armies working together. There's too many people say, oh, Blucher saved Wellington. Well, he didn't because the plan was devised on the 17th of June, the day before. So it wasn't saved. It was basically a trap coming together, in my humble opinion. Mm. But it, it's really important to show the Prussians, to show Blucher. And then we get some fantastic scenes of, of Blucher, him, again, artistic license for him cheering them on, saying, raise the black flags, mein Kinder, and onwards, onwards, which gives a, a bit of a, a Blucher feel. If not historically accurate, it's quite nice. If you take away Steiger and Plummer, 
Who's your favourite? I mean, you've got Orson Welles, you've got Jack Hawkins, who for me, that's Allenby. That's why he makes me excited. You've got Dan O'Hurley. What's your favourite portrayal away from the main two? Yeah, I'd definitely say Jack Hawkins as Picton. Um, I think that's inspired. And also the dusty voice thing, um, because Picton himself had been in a duel uh, many years before and been shot in the throat, which gave him a dusky voice. So I think, oh. I'm not sure if it was deliberate, but the, the way it worked out, it was perfect in terms of getting this dusky voice to come across, I think. So it, was, it wasn't like when Nicolas Cage did that weird voice in Peggy Sue Got Married and everyone was like, what is he doing? Is that <laughs> justification? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Zach? Yeah, for me, it's it's Jack Hawkins as Picton. In kind of the... the but Picton was a very bullish character, very controversial individual um in some respects a, a git in other respects <laughs> um a, a decorated war hero and somebody that wellington trusted and to be trusted by wellington was a mark of how good you were at your job mm. um but hawkins just kind of brought across the whole kind of the bluster of the guy that bullish nature we were talking about how rod steiger and really kind of fits the the image i kind of feel that hawkins fitted the, the kind of the, sc- the, the scale of um, Picton as a kind of bulkier, I mean, Picton wasn't fat, but he was kind of a, a bulky guy, a big guy, yeah. um, physically dominating. And I think Jack Hawkins really brought that across nicely. Marcus? Yeah, I, I was going to say Jack Hawkins as well, um, because he's so good. And also, because it's interesting, because Picton is so controversial. Um, with especially at the moment his connection to slavery but to save someone else people like Terence Alexander as Uxbridge um, maybe not a perfect portrayal of Uxbridge but it's really nice to have him as part of the story especially like the moments of exasperation you know what are your, what are your plans your grace I think I feel I should know and Wellington just kind of taking a newspaper off his face and going well I plan to give the French a damn good thrashing um it's it's very Wellington. He does he never wanted second in command, so it kind of yeah plays into the Wellington side of the story, which funnily enough I like. Um, but it's it it kind of it shows that exasperation of having a second in command. He's appointed by horse guards and the other uh, prince regents kind of favourite, and yeah, and it does give them that nice bit of pairing towards the end, just before spoiler alert, Uxbridge loses his leg. Um, that's all quite good. I think it's also great how they include Delancey throughout the film because many books sort of completely miss Delancey, who is Wellington's chief of staff. Um, and the film, mainly again because of the romantic thing of him just being recently married and they include him being at the ball, which he actually wasn't at the ball. He was writing orders instead. But they show him throughout the film until he gets mortally wounded. And I think, you know, weirdly, they've actually hit the nail on the head with that one. So I think it's great. Um, as one of the key characters that they put put him in there, which is, again, all because of the romance. But, um, is there not some epic what, quote about what, not wearing black before you wear white as well, which is historically inaccurate? Um, I th- that's to do with Lord Hay, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, um, but he de- that is true in terms of the him meeting um, Georgiana Lennox at the ball. So, mm. But I don't know. I'm not sure about the exact quote, though. No, it's the... Uh, the white thing happens with Queen Victoria, so it doesn't exist yet. Oh, yeah. wearing white. But if you're going to do, like, tragic love stories, mm. um, Delancey's the one. His wife yeah. even has gets time to go out there and, uh, like, kind of dab his wounds as he's dying uh, yeah. from internal bleeding. 
whilst actually they have to do the, the gore, they, he's got internal bleeding, so they decide to uh, leech him and bleed him more um, as a potential cure. But his wife is actually there, and she wrote quite a famous set of um, diaries um, from her time in Brussels. But she's there, they're kind of the ones of recently married, eve of battle, going off on this great adventure. Delancey wasn't really meant to be in his role. Um, he's meant to be deputy, deputy. Um, but he, he stands up, and then he's uh, mortally wounded very close to, to Wellington uh, by a cannonball striking him. So, uh, yeah, it's... It's quite tragic, but definitely, definitely one for Hollywood. In fact, it's probably one for Hollywood that they could have shown on a bit more of um, Delancey. Always felt quite sorry for him. Anticipate getting a call from Netflix after this, or they'll just steal your idea. We've already talked about um, scale. I'm just reading something here that says that, so I checked, and it's 17,000 Soviets used as extras. Um, I think 2,000 are cavalry and the rest are foot people but it says that additionally they destroyed two hills laid five miles of road moved five thousand trees sowed fields of rye barley and flowers and reconstructed four historical buildings and to create the mud they laid six miles of underground irrigation piping what (laughs) that's that's massive when you look at how difficult the waterloo campaign was to fight especially Mm. because of the weather and the different languages and the allied nations like filming waterloo 1970 was like is one of the few things that is more difficult than fighting the waterloo campaign i think the, the director went everywhere with a stack huge. of interpreters didn't he to be able to, Had to talk to people yeah 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 i mean the scale was huge i mean the the cavalry that you mentioned i think they got a whole russian cavalry brigade in mm. i can't even think off the top of my head how many people that is at at that point in time that they're filming but the the horses to the people to get them all organized you're working with animals but then as you say sculpting the landscape at the same time and if i mean it's one of those really thankless tasks if you're going to make a a dramatic depiction of an actual historical event because there'll be people like me and marcus who will look at it and go i can see a mountain in the background that's not good enough and <laughs> in fairness I, I, there are moments when i see uh, kind of french or prussian troops marching on the field and there's a, mar- a mountain that they can't do anything about they don't have cgi they can't edit it out and i go no not good enough but give them their due as you say they re-sculpted um a whole swathe of landscape and they get it fairly they do it fairly well i mean if people have been to waterloo and they try and kind of take stills from the film and then compare that to the landscape they'll obviously see discrepancies of course they will that's that's going to happen but in terms of the really important bits they did a good enough job yeah i saw um i think it was will's post uh online uh from two days ago and somebody commented saying oh i, I can never watch it it's so historically inaccurate they got nothing right and i'm sorry that's just not true um yeah it's not it's not a like complete scene for scene of the battle, which is going to be impossible because there's so many conflicting stories of the Battle of Waterloo. The Duke of Wellington said himself, you might as well try to write the story of a ball as try to tell the story of battle because so many different views are there, uh, which is one of my favourite Wellington quotes because it just kind of says to people, oh, you've got two sources that say one thing, someone else has got ten that say another. Who's right? But there's a lot in the film that is right, and they haven't tried to exaggerate too much. They, 
you know, the central cast is quite small, kind of on purpose, because there's already a lot of story to tell. But they definitely put the effort in. This isn't like kind of a haphazard Hollywood style, um, just throwing big names at something and not really caring. There's definite real effort, and you can tell that. But I think the way it's worked, that A, it's kind of a historian favourite, and B, as you were saying earlier, the, the people it's inspired to go into the era, it's what Sharp was probably for our generation, it was the previous generation, and even today, it stands up there as being just as good, just as enjoyable, um, certainly. Will, are you happy? Yeah, I was just going to say the the scale of things, yes, it's amazing in terms of the amount of treats they get involved in, you know, it's difficult to would have been difficult back then, you know, to do it any other way than get that amount of troops involved. And I think some of the shots are amazing in terms of I mean, the one that sticks out for me is the Allied squares um, when the cavalry are charging around and just the aerial shots of those um, are a really good depiction of, yeah, you know, again, you can always pick holes in terms of they're all red-coated squares and they wouldn't have been or things like that. But it's just really good to try and convey the scale of what was happening. And I think... And that's something that the film really does really well, um, and especially when they're having to use real people to actually do it. It's amazing. Zach? Yeah, um, just going back to what Marcus was saying, mm. I, I think the really important thing is that they get what matters right. They focus their efforts in the right area. And we, I talked about Vanity Fair earlier. Vanity Fair did a big thing about we've trained these people to fight like the real deal. And they, they took these people through military manoeuvres, gave them kind of a crash course in... Um, how to handle the weapons, et cetera, et cetera. And off the back of that, we were all meant to look at that and go, that's wonderful. They've, they've got it bang on. Um, and that wasn't really the, no. the reality. I mean, um, these Soviet one tra- troops, apparently they put them through months of training in 1815 drill and stuff. Well, you kind of have to. And mm. just the other day, I was commenting on um, some depiction. We were talking about squares. Uh, there's a film that came out recently about an uprising in Moscow, I think it was, um, shortly after the Napoleonic Wars, where they do this kind of thing of cavalry charging at squares. Now, for people who know the story of Waterloo, they will know that in the afternoon, Marshal Ney basically decimates Napoleon's cavalry by charging them all at um, Wellington's right flank, which are formed in square. And if you're infantry, the way you defend yourself against cavalry is formed square. And there were massive issues in how this film on the, um, the uprising in Moscow depicted the whole thing and myself andy Locke, marcus we're all sitting there kind of bouncing off of each other taking it apart they the waterloo um 1970 depiction gets those details right and importantly they come to the same realization that bernard cornwell actually came to when he was writing sharps waterloo which is that waterloo itself is drama enough you don't need to add much in the way of hype because you've got the drama right there yeah. that square thing the bloodthirsty picture i gave you for your birthday Yes, yes, exactly uh, that. With all yeah. the dead people. I, that was my birthday gift to Zach was a picture of a lot of dead people. <laughs> the, the, the squares are really interesting. Like, I, I had to give a talk. I, I was asked to give a talk. I had to. It's a bit harsh. Um, I was asked to give a talk to... Uh, <laughs> no, one has to <laughs> ask, no one has to push you to talk, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I used... Um, a clip from the cavalry charge because it was a cavalry regiment I was giving a talk to and then I used stills of the cavalry squares from Waterloo because it's one of the most accurate depiction of not just one square but of multiple squares that aerial shot Will was talking about is really quite accurate in fact I even I always thought it was a bit strange that some of the squares is shown as triangles 
And then only in recent readings, you see that some of the regiments were so depleted, they go down to just like really rough little um, formations because they, they don't have enough men to form four sides. And that's in there. And to get that like sense of drama, sense of horror, like that's only can be achieved by having thousands of people. If it was CGI, when I think of CGI soldiers, I always think of the Brad Pitt Troy. You oh, see them like... Yeah. Like they all move too quickly, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, they don't they don't move like and something you just don't get is like that sense of impact with man, man meets horse and then the closing up of people being like if I can say it, fucking terrified. Yeah. Like it like, is gladiators good for that at the beginning, be isn't themselves it? Going, yeah, let's go. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, something else that you've already mentioned that camera angle because it's a bit silly about Napoleon, but they did, and it would be like not fair to say that they didn't take a lot of inspiration from War and Peace, which was four years before Waterloo, with the aerial camera shots. But they're very for a techie historian nerd, and all three of you are techie historian nerds. I'm proud. Uh, that must be great to see those aerial panoramic shots of a battlefield of the Battle of Waterloo in action. Will's grinning. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely think that the aerial shots add so much to it. And again, like we were just saying, the scale. I mean, interesting for me is how small the battlefield of Waterloo itself is. And I think the aerial shots, I mean, they could have done it even more in terms of trying to cram people in to actually emphasise how um, everyone was crammed into these sort of three square miles um, where everything was happening. And I think um, looking from above just really adds to the idea that everyone was sort of having it out in a very small area. Um, and I think that that's, that really portrays that really well. Yeah, I agree. And kind of combining that with what Marcus was saying, is I, for me, it's the interplay between the two. You get the kind of the macro scale of kind of looking down on multiple regiments. They're all firing on cavalry or firing on um, French columns advancing, whatever it might be, or they're in bayonet hand-to-hand fighting. But you see that from the top, but you also see it at a ground level because they managed to get in some of the stories of the rank and file, like this guy who gets promoted to corporal. He's a kind of a running character throughout the day of Waterloo itself on the 18th of June. And to be able to play the two off is where the film really comes together. And it doesn't just become this big kind of grand strategy nerd fest of who moved where. Mm. It's also about that deeply personal element of the fact that people to the left and the right of you are being sh- having their heads blown off by cannonballs and, and things, really horrific wounds. Um, and you're a hair's breadth from death, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to stand there and take it, which is one of the most incredible things about combat during this period. It's not like today, where you can be proactive and duck and cover and fire off your own volition. Utter nonsense of standing there and waiting till it's your turn to fire again. Yeah, that's there. And I really like, actually, when Zach was saying, one of my favourite parts is this corporal, and they're having their gin ration, a tot of gin, and the guy next to him refuses it because he's religious. And he says something along the lines of, oh, there's nothing worse than being on the battlefield stood next to a friend of the Almighty. Because he's basically <laughs> going, well, it's not going to be him who dies, is it? So that means <laughs> yeah. here. Um, oh, statistically wild just went down. Yeah. <laughs> Zach? The other thing that I like is there's this moment, and I don't know if Marcus and, and Will can remember more of this than I do, but I'm sure there's this guy who sees all of the carnage around him and he just flips. He he has a kind of a mental breakdown partway through. No, they're both um, raising their hands. <laughs> you guys want me to shut up and, and just sit in there? <laughs> Will's I, particularly excited. I'm guessing that's the uh, 
fit in the squares and it's getting the, yeah, exactly. in the skin. Why do we all kill each other? Why yeah. do we do it? Yeah. Me and my exactly. friend when we're drunk, we often um, pause and just go, why? Why do we? Just <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same thing, the same carnage. That's, that's the scars of a PhD, though. like me when I just sometimes go, now, mate, then they won't stand, but okay. <laughs> oh, there is no it's hope for any of It's a film for drunk quotes. Isn't <laughs> okay. It? Yeah, it is. I will ask you, uh, first of all, I want to say, what have you guys got in retort for Rotten Tomatoes who rate this at 27%? Marcus is making hand gestures. Will's laughing. Zach looks like, that's Zach's I want to swear, but I'm too much of a gentleman face. <laughs> but I know exactly I've done too many of these. You've done to read now. It's yeah. not good. For those, oh for those that aren't familiar with Zach's faces, or you can't see him because <laughs> you haven't got the video feed of this, but his face says, fuck off. <laughs> Just that's not that's not on. It's in top films ever made, in humble opinion. I think. I mean, not a good sounding board here, but I think you're going to agree with me. It's a fantastic (laughs) film. Well, Peter Jackson says it it inspired him. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, Peter Jackson has his own cavalry charge, doesn't he? Uh, Mm. The siege of Minas Tirith in Return of the King. So, oh, now you I mean, he has territory now, now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, guys, right, okay, let's screw Rotten Tomatoes. What is the best moment in the entire film, Zach? Um, cavalry charges, got to be. Um, although I like the kind of the defence of Hougamont, I think the, the, the cavalry charge, because there are two of them, there's the British cavalry charge, which famously overextends itself, goes all the way to the uh, French gun line, and then comes back. But then you've got the French one. And I think the way that they do both of those um, is is just brilliant in terms of how catastrophically wrong it goes for both sides when it comes to cavalry, which was really quite crucial in terms of two key turning points in the battle where it could have gone either way. Uh, yeah, for me, definitely the cavalry charges um, in terms of the squares, like I was saying earlier. And then, I mean, the Scots Graves charges iconic in terms of them coming forward I mean obviously it didn't happen quite like that but you know open ground like that but um I think the cavalry charges are amazing bits of of the film so yeah that's what I'd go with I think see there's a bit and I know it's historically inaccurate but I just don't care enough because it's great (laughs) Wellington shouting now Maitland they won't stand ordering the guards up to fire by volley. The bit that's historically inaccurate is they kind of fire from all the way, standing, 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 a bit like Zulu. And it didn't happen like that because they would have ended up shooting each other in the back. But as somebody who loathes Napoleon, like that (laughs) moment very quickly followed by... I know, Zach's shocked at this information. I'm so quiet about it. Um, It is so quickly followed by Le Garde Ricoule, so the old guard, the imperial guard as well, the middle guard, famously, um, stepping back. And you just know, like, it's over. It's like 40 years of war. We've finally beaten the ogre. Yes. And you do cheer, like, even if it's just internally, because you're trying to watch it with, like, friends and family, but normally I don't. And I just let it go and give it a cheer. We've finally done it. It's it's great. It's it's a culmination. It's an epic film. It's a long film. And so kind of almost reaching an end, it builds, it builds. And the story of Waterloo is so dramatic. It needs a dramatic ending. And if that ending is, it did happen, Wellington going in and micromanaging the orders for the Guards Brigade in regiment by regiment. 
brilliant. You just give you can just give Wellington more credit, which is only ever a good thing. As if you haven't done so for the last forty five minutes, sell the film. Why should everybody go and watch it to celebrate this anniversary, Will? Um, yeah, just because it's a great film, um, great war film in terms of giving basic outline of the battle, and it's inspired so many people over the years that I think it's an absolute must to go and go and watch it if you're interested in military history. Zach? If you can't be bothered to read a book on Waterloo, don't go and do a Wikipedia page because the Wikipedia page will give you some stuff that's wrong that's probably in the film anyway. But if you watch the film, you'll have to use less brain power, you'll enjoy yourself more, and so you'll probably get bitten by the Napoleonic bug and want to listen to more History Hack episodes about the, the Napoleonic Wars. So, and your you podcast. Look at you, Zach White, man of the people. Marcus? Yeah, it's the closest I think we can do. I actually quite like Vanity Fair because um, I didn't expect myself to like it. But there's nothing <laughs> in that case that I like it. Um, but, it, I mean, Sharp, I love Sharp, but it's not accurate. Waterloo, it's it's as most accurate as we're kind of probably ever going to get because when someone comes to do a remake, and they will, it will have a cast of about 12 people and a 10,000 uh, CGI men jumping around really weirdly. It won't have the t- thousands of horses. It won't have the thousands of men. And you'll be able to tell this feels like Waterloo. And it kind of pays tribute to the people who were there. It has real quotes, so as close as accurate as we can have quotes from Napoleon and Wellington. So it ticks the historical boxes. It's got a good soundtrack and a good ending. Boom. I say if we're allowed out this time next year, we all go over there and watch it together, get shit-faced, play the drinking games as close to the battlefield as possible. If you have enjoyed this, we'll join do us. that, Alex, <laughs> and we'll be drinking. We'll be drinking Waterloo beer, I promise you, which is delicious. And you can all wave swords of mine around and stuff. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I'm going to be on Belgian gin. Um, guys, if you have enjoyed this, join us on Friday because we will be down the pub debating the greatest war film in history. And uh, these two hypocrites, neither of them have picked Waterloo. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, you get ignore everything they've just said. Will, you're welcome to join us as well. Thank you so much for coming on to celebrate the anniversary of the film. I hope we've encouraged people to go and watch it and given them a bit of the background in the history and also a bit of the uh, background to a bit of cinematic history as well. Join us tomorrow when Freya Gowley will be with us to talk all about the history of the home. She has a new book coming out which looks at art in the home and the home I don't know it's a piece of art maybe how we treat our personal space and how that changed massively in the 18th century uh, really really interesting and what's even more interesting is to go forward now and see how we're responding in similar ways uh, as a result of being forced to lock down for coronavirus so don't miss that We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.